Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Moving has been a feature of the pandemic. People left cities, people left states, apartment dwellers got itchy, young people moved back in with their parents, house prices soared, locals got ticked off and felt like they couldn't afford anything anymore. And if all that seemed like kind of a lot to process, it may pale in comparison to what's coming. They'll be moving from a lot of places as their origin to a lot of places as as their destination. That's Michael Oppenheimer. He's a professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton University. Some of that migration may be temporary. They may go back to where they came from when conditions improve. Really short-term migration is called displacement. That's essentially when you really have to run run for your life, for instance, uh, after a catastrophic event. But a larger fraction of migration, particularly permanent migration, is long-term and results from basically the climate effects working on people's economic viability. Oppenheimer has served on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. And he says, lots of scientists and leaders warn us about climate change and then encourage reducing carbon output, which is great. Except, Oppenheimer notes, lots of what's going to change in the next 10, 20, 30 years, it will change in the next 10, 20, 30 years, no matter what. Wind turbines and solar panels can make the future better, but plenty of change is baked in, as we've seen in the recent heat waves that blanketed the northwestern U.S. That's going to lead to movement like we've never seen. Movement within the U.S. and around the world. It's time to take stock of where you live, and we're going to talk about some of the cities and towns where people may be headed out. But if you can't quite imagine masses and masses of people moving, get ready. The uh, reach of the sea during, say, a a very high tide or during a storm surge, say when a hurricane makes landfall nearby, will mean that a place is temporarily flooded that had never been flooded before. And as that kind of flooding increases, people are going to eventually say, look, I'm not going to wait for my land to be totally drowned. I just have to get out of here because it's not going to be available soon. Now, at that point, they may make a judgment that they're only going to move a few blocks or a few miles, or they may decide to move across the country. We just don't know. That final decision depends on a lot of factors, like, again, where their family can thrive, where they can make an income, and basically where they'll feel most comfortable. And hopefully, they'll also look at the changing climate conditions, because climate conditions are going to be changing everywhere. We have evidence today that people don't really think about climate change and what it's going to do at their destination location when they move away from some place because of some insult, mm. which is clearly related to the climate. It's a little right. odd, but they just don't have the information. They haven't fully digested it yet. And as a result, people are moving into places that have a lot of climate risk associated with, with it. We did a study of Bangladesh, which argued that there'll be a continued flow of people toward the coast, not away from the coast, even though it's one of the most low-lying, most exposed places in the world, because there are still increasing numbers of job opportunities down there. So people are going to do a balance, and we could wind up with a situation where there are even more people in risky places. It's just that people will have run from one risk into another risk. You um, outlined two places, two 
two reasons in the U.S. why you think people might move. One is that, like, maybe their house keeps getting flooded all the time. And I mean, nobody likes that. Um, uh, And another is like, if they do something that's very weather dependent, like farming and the weather changes, and it's just not working out. um, Do you think that there will be parts of the US where people say, you know, once this wasn't true, but now it's just too hot. I can't handle living here anymore. Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's a long history of people in the U.S. moving from the colder northeastern part of the country to the warmer south and southwest. That's moving due to climate. Now this is a little more subtle. This is moving due to climate change in a situation where you don't know exactly what's going to happen at any particular place at any specific time in the future. We just know in some places, like much of the southwest, it's going to become hotter and probably drier as well. So we do expect some people will make the decision to move out of there because it's too hot for them or whatever they made a living off has just gotten impossible. Or, as is going to happen at some places in the world, the combination of heat and humidity will be deadly. That is, we are going to get an increasing frequency of conditions, not so much in the United States, but say in the Persian Gulf region, for instance, or southern India, where that combination will be deadly if you simply go outside and do construction work or do farming or even just play soccer. So those are the kind of conditions where people basically won't have a choice unless they're perfectly happy to live totally indoors under air-conditioned con- uh, situations a lot of the year. But then again, a lot of people don't have and will not have air conditioning mm. as the century goes on. Talk to me a little bit about heat and humidity, because I think people think like, oh, it's 100 degrees in Arizona, and it's only, let's say, you know, 80 degrees or 85 degrees in New York City on a given day. But, you know, humidity factors in, how does it factor in, how does it affect people? The, the body has to cool itself because the body generates a lot of heat in the course of digesting food, converting that into energy, doing useful things with the energy, like working or thinking. The brain uses a lot of energy. And the body can't get too hot or else it can't function at a certain point. You die if you let yourself get too hot. That's why we look at the body temperature very closely. And if it just goes up a a few degrees, we worry about it. So what happens under climate change is the air in a lot of places will get both hotter and more humid. And one of the main ways the body dissipates heat is by sweating. And if the atmosphere is wetter, the sweat won't evaporate from your skin. So that interrupts this major cooling mechanism. And as a result, it's that combination of heat and humidity, more even than just the heat itself, which can be so deadly. So people say the dry heat in, say, Arizona or New Mexico is fine at, a, at temperatures that people in the Northeast would consider unbearable. But there are days when there's a combination of heat and humidity where it's getting to the point where it can be quite dangerous to be outside. And in particular, nighttime temperatures, they must cool below a certain level or else over the course of days, people expect that they're going to be able to recover. That is, their body expects to be able to recover at night when they sleep, for instance. If if it isn't cool enough, if it isn't dry enough, 
it can't recover, and that's terrible for human health, and particularly for people who are already vulnerable, like people who are ill or aged. So, I mean, in your city, New York City, do you worry about um, that creep of both heat and, I mean, we know like on East, in East Coast cities, it can get really, really humid. Right. Yes, I mean, I worry about it for several reasons. I don't think that in the foreseeable future we're going to get to the point, uh, even in some of the worst scenarios in New York, where we're going to hit those deadly heat levels very often. By the way, the deadly heat is measured by a factor called the wet bulb temperature. And the highest wet bulb temperature ever measured in the United States was measured in Appleton, Wisconsin. And so that, you know, so the north central and the northeast parts of the country can get these into the this sort of range of dangerous warming. And so what I worry about is a lot of people in New York and other cities can't afford air conditioning and they live in old housing and that some of them have to keep their windows closed for security purposes. And some of them already are old and can't go out very much. And those people are living in circumstances where they just can't cool off. Now, in theory, cities like New York or Chicago or Phoenix have cooling centers set up where people can go when it gets too hot. But those cooling centers seem to have been set up more or less haphazardly, whether ever there's some kind of facility that they can uh, maintain the air conditioning in under ex when there is extreme weather out. And they are not located very close to where people live necessarily who are the most vulnerable. And the people who are vulnerable can't get up and walk a mile to a cooling center. And a lot of them don't have cars. This is called a climate justice issue because it falls most heavily not on people who are relatively wealthy, not on people who can afford air conditioning, not on people who can jump in their cars and, and you know, find some other place to be cool if there happens to be, for instance, an electrical outage, electric power outage, because there's too much air conditioning demand in a city. This falls really hard on the people least able to deal with it. And one other thing on the issue of heat, um, you've written about how it's not having like four 90 degree days in a row is not the same as one 90 degree. It's not like just in some ways the sum is 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 more than you would think. Um, it, there's a kind of cumulative effect, right? That that's correct. And uh, there's a couple of reasons that why that happens. First of all, as I said before, the body kind of gets exhausted. It needs a period to recover. And for these very same people who are living in some circumstances in unair conditioned old masonry buildings like brick tenements, those tenements inside, when the outside air cools off, they don't cool off immediately. They retain a lot of heat. So if it's warm for a day, really warm for a few days, and then it gets cool outside, but gets hot again a couple of days later, the tenement may not have cooled off hardly at all. And so you get, again, these very high nighttime temperatures, and you get people who just are stuck in a, what looks like a warm condition for maybe at a week at a time. And that's too much. It's bad for human health, and ultimately it can be deadly. And again, that's an environmental justice question. Um, we saw with COVID, to some degree, people with means said, like, 
I'm leaving X, Y, or Z place. I don't want to be here. It could be that the um, I'm worried about getting infected. It could be the restrictions are too much. I'm going to like my country home or I'm going to rent a country home or whatever it is. Um, uh, they could get food delivered. When you think about where wealthy people will go when de- you know, when they are sort of confronted with some of the issues you talked about, like rising sea levels and stuff, um, where do you like what do you think may happen in 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 that way in terms of like wealthy people fleeing places uh you'll see probably wealthy people making a lot of different choices after all the cities have these cores with high concentrations of wealth because of the amenity value of museums, restaurants, interactions between people. Like it's always said, that's why Wall Street survived so long, because the traders get to eat lunch with each other. All of that stuff, every time it's been predicted that cities were going to die or dissipate because we don't need that kind of concentration, those predictions have turned out to be untrue. And I'm not going to predict that by any means, especially as someone who lives in the middle of the city. I think that what's more likely to happen is wealthy people will find ways to defend themselves. And for a while, that'll probably work for them. Unfortunately, most people aren't very wealthy. They won't be able to find ways to defend themselves from not just extreme heat or extreme humidity, but extreme precipitation from all the onslaughts of climate change. And so their options are going to shrink over time. And they may be driven out of places that they really prefer to stay in because they can't essentially build protective walls for themselves. Even the sea level rise problem can be partially ameliorated for some period of time by raising houses, for instance. Is that what you mean when you say uh, they will find ways to protect themselves? For instance, and then... They can go even further. They can, you know, wealthy people have more political influence. They have money they spend on political campaigns to influence politicians. Some of that money is going to be spent to influence the construction, I'm sure, of coastal defenses in the places where rich people live selectively. Okay. And there are decisions that have to be made. We can't protect every inch of the coast. There's no question about that. But then again, do we really want to pr- prioritize protecting people who just happen to have the resources to buy influence? Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Michael Oppenheimer. He's a professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton. He spent many years on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. We'll talk more in a minute about what lies ahead. But first, what are various cities dealing with when it comes to climate change? Over the course of the show, we're going to check in with reporters across the U.S. who are covering this story. I think the issue that's really top of mind in Houston when it comes to climate change is really uh, flooding and hurricanes. Katie Watkins is the environmental reporter for Houston Public Media. I mean, what we saw with Hurricane Harvey was totally unprecedented, you know, broke records for rainfall. But then it's also just kind of crazy to think about, you know, that was just one of six major flooding disasters that the Houston area has had in the past five years. Um, You know, and we know that climate change is causing hurricanes to be bigger and wetter with more rainfall and to also intensify faster. Watkins says the city has to deal with a variety of related but different issues. Apart from being inundated by water, there are increasing heat waves, the impact of longer mosquito seasons, an electric grid under tremendous pressure, and lots of folks, she says, who either don't have air conditioning 
or can't really afford the cost of running it too often. And then, on top of all that, Watkins has reported on fallout from climate change you might not expect. The largest petrochemical complex in the country, you know, is in an area extremely vulnerable to sea level rise and hurricanes. We've already seen the impacts of that. You know, during Hurricane Harvey, there was a chemical disaster caused by these bigger, wetter storms. Um, The Arkema chemical plant caught fire. And, you know, I do think it's really important to show the human impact. So we spoke with a first responder who still has lung damage from responding to that chemical fire during Hurricane Harvey. Katie Watkins covers the environment for Houston Public Media. We're going to link to her reporting on our website, innovationhub.org. And when we come back, more with Michael Oppenheimer on why preparing for changes in the climate that are pretty much a sure thing, that is just as important as preventing more climate change. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In March, President Biden told George Stephanopoulos of ABC News that he was not responsible for immigrants trying to come to America through the southern border. The idea that Joe Biden said come, because I, I heard the other day that they're, they're coming because they know I'm a nice guy and I won't do They're saying this. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. They're not. The adults are being sent back, number one. That's number one. But Biden emphasized he didn't want to continue former President Trump's policy of family separation. That was not an option for him. And anyway, the real solution to the problem, he said, would involve addressing the root causes of why people were coming to America. Why are they leaving El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras? Because they're in terrible circumstances, either because of natural disasters and hurricanes, gangs, or violence. They're trying to escape. And that's why they're coming. You notice that right up there at the top of the list are climate-related problems. Problems that, in fact, might even spur economic conflict and competition for increasingly limited resources. Michael Oppenheimer, who has long served on the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, he argues that a spate of new studies show clearly climate change is going to spur movement on a scale that may surprise us. People do move in response to excess heat. They move in response to either too much or too little precipitation. And that movement isn't just within the U.S., let's say people retreating from beachfront communities. It's all around the world. Though, he told me, most people really, really don't want to move. The climate variability can interrupt their livelihood. And how long are they going to sit in a particular place with diminishing livelihood without thinking this may be what the future looks like? And indeed, Now it may well be what the future looks like because some of this variability is now segued into climate trends of more and more heat, more and more humidity, in many places, more and more drought and certainly higher sea level. Um, We... uh We obviously, over the last several years, have talked a lot in this country about people arriving at the southern border. And um, uh, there's so many questions about, like, how many people do you uh, let in? You know, how do you think about the definition of refugees? I wonder if you think as climate change becomes more 
powerful in sort of changing agricultural realities, um, you know, realities in cities. How much do you think that will change how much people want to migrate to the U.S.? As a general rule, as I said, people like to stay within their own country. Mm -hmm. In fact, as a general rule, they don't like to move at all. People's preferences, even under rather stark conditions sometimes, are they like where they live and they, that's home and they want to stay put. So I'll skip over a point and just say, if you're thinking about what to do about this potential problem, one thing a place like the United States can do is help people stay where they want to stay in the first place. But that having said, there are certain countries that bear a certain historical relationship of pathways called networks having developed between an origin and a destination on the other side of the border. The classic case is the U.S.-Mexico relationship, where there was long-standing migration. Mexicans used to own part of this country. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got historical roots, where there's all kinds of migration in terms of people coming to earn a living in this country and going back. Circular migration, where they, that stay in this country might be a, a season, uh, it might be a very short time. And then there are long-term, the longer-term migration where people go, they find opportunity, they like it, and they stay. So one can envision many different outcomes, and I would say that the main factor is probably going to be what's going on in the countries, which are the source countries. And there you want to look at, well, what's the climate going to be in Central America, for instance, or in Mexico as things change? And the projections are not good. They are for a significantly hotter and a significantly drier climate. And for places which are dependent on farming and natural resources, that means people's livelihoods are going to literally dry up in many cases, and they will look around for other opportunities. First, staying where they are in their own country or near where they originally lived, then maybe moving within their own country. But then, since these networks exist, which make it easier and more comfortable for them to come to the United States, many of them will want to come to the United States. They may have relatives here. They may see opportunities. They may have information from people who left their town earlier about what the opportunities are. And I think one can expect a, a, a gradual increase in those flows. But it's also true we could do a lot to make it easier for people who want to stay home to just stay there by increasing our assistance to govern governments and by favoring governments that actually know how to govern. And we mm -hmm. haven't done enough of that in that area. If we zoom out um, and look at the whole world, would you say um, there are specific areas where you think these are places, if I had to highlight the places where people are going to be leaving, I would circle these areas on the map. And if I had to circle some places where people are going to be going, I would circle these areas. Yeah, we don't like to do that because the projections have a lot of uncertainty. But if you look around at where there are areas, you know, just speaking very generally, mm -hmm. where the risk of climate change being very disruptive is high and where they're near countries that may have substantial economic opportunity and may be able to deal with migration flows and may be willing to deal with migration flows. One would look at the Mediterranean basin, North Africa, close by to Europe. And of course, you see people trying to come across there all the time. One would probably look at certain areas of Southeast Asia, 
where sea level rise is already a very big problem and ask whether the, the bigger and more wealthy countries of Asia, Japan, which has not a very good record in terms of being receptive to refugees, China even, which doesn't, as far as I know, have a welcoming refugee policy. What, what are they going to do? The U.S. is, in fact, a lot of times stepped up to their responsibility for handling refugee flows. We've got a history of sort of flipping back and forth when it's in our self-interest, and that is when we want the labor, essentially, is what it comes down to. Uh, we've been very welcome, welcoming. We've reached out to encourage people to come to this country. And then at other times, as under the Trump administration, we've tried to slam the door, although you can never really slam the door. So the question is, how are other countries, not just the United States, how is Europe going to behave? Are they going to be receptive? They've recently had a terrible experience in mismanaging refugee flows that were not climate refugees so much, but refugees from conflict in the Middle East, the Syria situation. Will they do it better the next time? That's an important question. Are they thinking about it? I know they are. Security people in Europe are very concerned about this. The risk isn't going to go away. And then there's Southern Africa. There's kind of a bullseye over South Africa of excess heat. It's still uh, largely a rural economy, dependent on agriculture. But if the climate situation gets bad enough in most of the country, then you have to hope that their industrialization will move apace and they'll be able to absorb those people into the economy in a different way. I, I know you're like a, a, a real scientist, but I know there's also a political <laughs> part of you. Um, and I mean, do you I mean, I just think about how. The politics, you, you alluded to this in Europe, in America, of, you know, having a lot of refugees and that sometimes, people, you know, uh, a, a country or a region beca can become very protectionist in reaction to a lot of migration. Like, does the political part of you just think, just worry about, whoa, what if... The number of people wanting to come triples, quadruples, more. I mean, it's just I, I just I, I wonder what you think of that. You know, that's the part of it, which is much harder to predict. Those large flows tend to come in a disorganized way when there's an immediate critical situation and it's really a refugee situation. And although those happen sometimes due to climate events of the type that we expect to see increasing, like floods, for instance, or like hurricane strikes, a lot of it is temporary. And if we could just get our act together to better take care of people who really want to go back home once the weather is cleared up and there's been some reconstruction, the situation would be a lot more manageable. So the, the wealthy countries have to learn how to manage those situations. The gradual migration, I'm not so worried about that. If there's a gradual increase in sort of the continual flow that happens due to there being better opportunity in other places, the U.S., for instance, has thrived on welcoming people over time. And I think this is a matter of being ready for those flows, in some cases, to be increasing. But I don't see catastrophe coming out of it. What I see is we're going to have to learn. We're going to have to look back on our history and realize we've gained from accommodating, letting people in. And when we have these situations where it's just too much at once, 
We have to figure out how to share the responsibility with other countries. It's mostly what's happened, I think, is a lack of foresight, a lack of planning, and a lot of basically inhumane and uncharitable behavior on the part of governments mixed in. Um, I feel like a lot of what you're saying uh, comes back to a kind of central point of that though we often think about climate change in the context of, um, okay, so the plan is we're going to close this coal-fired power plant and we're going to open some wind turbines. And like that's the end of the discussion. I feel like you're saying, actually, there's kind of a lot of climate change already baked in. Even if we open, we, even if we get those wind turbines going, we better start planning for that too. Yeah, I mean, basically, we're not very good at dealing with the kind of climate extremes that we see already. And, you know, humanity has a long history. As long as the history of humanity, we've been dealing with climate extremes. As long as settled civilization has been in place, you know, 10,000 years, we've been dealing with the effects of extreme climate events and change on our essentially what's now called infrastructure. But now we've got a situation of much faster climate change because human beings have their foot on the accelerator and haven't learned how to take it off yet. And what I see is a world where we're not dealing very well, even with today's level of climate danger. We're not handling it right. We're still encouraging people to move to places like the low-lying coast, despite the fact that we know they're going to run into danger there. And, and once they're there, it becomes much harder to deal with, with how to get them out of there, either on a short-term basis when something bad is going to happen, or on a long-term basis to just sort of encourage people to move elsewhere. The classic case is Hurricane Katrina, where the city's evacuation plan was based on everybody getting in a car and getting out of the, there. Of course, when you do that, you get these huge traffic jams. But in addition, a lot of people in New Orleans were poor, black, and didn't have access to cars. And they're the ones who got stuck in, in the Superdome, for instance, as an example. So what are we doing about that? What are we doing about our current level of mismanagement? What is our government doing to get its act straight? We have to cut emissions of the greenhouse gases. Otherwise, this problem gets totally out of control. We have to focus on that as job number one today. But at the same time, if we're, we're still playing catch up on reducing the current risk while the risk is going up exponentially due to climate change. So we can't wait because there's a lot of heat built into the system that hasn't expressed itself yet. There are a lot of lags in the system. It takes a long time to get emissions reduction in place and really going. So while we're doing as much as we can on the emissions reduction front, that's only half the job. And so just to clarify, no amount of like installing solar panels on people's roofs are going to change the problems that like there's already a certain amount of change baked into the system. It's going to it's going to happen. Climate change between now and about 2050 is baked in more or less, no matter what we do with uh, our emissions, more or less the same level of climate change, the same level of sea level rise is going to happen. So we have to learn to deal with that. And since we already today are not dealing very well with the climate change we've got, we better get better at it fast.
One final break in my conversation with Michael Oppenheimer. He's a professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton. He's one of the world's leading experts on climate change. First, though, we're going to hear from another on-the-ground reporter who's covering how folks are evolving and shifting. We have a lot of coastal communities, so sea level rise is an obvious threat here. Brendan Rivers is a reporter for WJCT News. But also the St. John's River goes right through the heart of downtown Jacksonville and goes for miles. It's the longest river in Florida. I think it's 300 miles long or something like that. So it goes all the way down almost to Orlando. So we actually have a, a huge issue with inland flooding as well. Some of the communities that are further inland actually flood more than some of the areas that are closer to the coast. Rivers is the lead reporter for ADAPT, WJCT's effort to explore climate change in Northeast Florida. He notes that Hurricane Irma, which hit Florida in September of 2017, caused major flooding. And since then, home buyout programs in which the government seeks to pull people away from places that frequently flood, those programs are becoming more commonplace. Basically, what the city is doing is they're buying homes and properties from people. Uh, and once they buy them, they're just going to turn that area into green space in perpetuity, basically, uh, so that it'll be areas that can help absorb flood water and there won't be anything there that could be damaged and, and have to be repaired. This kind of falls under that uh, managed retreat kind of umbrella that you, you hear about where basically people are just moving away from these these areas that are prone to flooding. The pain, Rivers says, of cleaning up after every disaster has gotten to be too much for some people. One of the, the things that always sticks in my mind is when I was doing some coverage after Hurricane Irma. So there were, there were two guys that I spoke to. One of these guys, he sold boats and his apartment was flooded during Hurricane Irma. And just talking to him about it and, and the emotion in his voice. And he, he had recently gone through chemotherapy. He had cancer. And after that, having to deal with this, he said it was like $30,000 worth of damage to his apartment. And I mean, he wasn't like a super wealthy guy, so it was a huge hit. He was talking about that, but then he said the 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 worst things that he lost were like the family mementos, like boxes of like pictures and stuff like that that had all the sentimental value that he lost. Um, that was really uh, an emotional conversation I had with him. Brendan Rivers reports for WJCT in Jacksonville. We're going to have more from him and from Katie Watkins in Houston, who we heard from earlier in the show. That's at innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If your big message about climate change is that we need to tell people the truth and invest a whole lot of time and money into dealing with the fact that the next few decades of climate change are pretty much a sure thing, almost no matter what we do. So if that's your message, you might start wondering where in the world the adaptation specialists are. Let's have an adaptation and resilient czar in place. I don't, I was just wondering today if I wanted to say this to somebody in the federal government below the level of the president, who would I say it to? Michael Oppenheimer has long served on the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He's a professor at Princeton, and he argues that all the attention on weaning ourselves off fossil fuels is good. It's imperative, really, but it's not good enough. You see today about 85 percent 
of federal money goes to clean up afterwards, and only only about 15% goes to doing something in advance to prevent the damage from happening in the first place. We could save a lot of money by just changing that equation. Oppenheimer says that the Biden administration has allocated some money to deal with the climate change that's baked in between now and 2050. And in places like Jacksonville, Florida, as you heard, there are those who have sold their homes to the government, which will return the land to green space. But are we moving fast enough to deal with a planet that's changing quickly? Oppenheimer worries we're not, and the stakes are high. Because if we fail, we are going to face the move of the century. People leaving cities and states and countries. We need somebody at the White House level who could look across government, look across the crazy quilt and perverse incentives that we give people to move into danger rather than out of danger, to clean up afterwards rather than invest in defense ahead of time. All that has to be changed, and it all is systemic and deeply embedded and taking apart those perverse incentives and putting new mechanisms in place is very hard because for every perverse incentive, there's somebody who benefits from it. And that's why it's there. We have to get rid of all that, sweep it away and develop a totally new system for adaptation, which integrates the big revenue raising power of the federal government with the fact that most of these decisions are going to be done at the local level, by local governments, by state governments and by individual households. It same. It sounds like one of the big things you you would suggest if there was this czar uh, of adaptability, like how do you adapt to to the climate change that's already baked in the system? It, it sounds like you would say like make sure that people do not build houses or move into houses that are in harm's way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, cities, counties, states really eventually have to bite the bullet and decide which areas can be protected, which areas can be not thoroughly protected, so, but people can live there, so they can only live if they build in a certain way, which keeps the, the infrastructure and the people out of the risk, say, by raising everything, put it all up on pillars. That's done uh, a lot, for instance, along the Jersey coast. And what areas aren't going to be good for having anybody there and where we ought to stop building infrastructure and we should withdraw because they're too expensive to protect because we can't build a seawall around the whole coast of the United States. We don't have that much money and yet we have to protect people and ultimately the way to do that for a lot of areas is going to let areas near the coast return to marsh, return to natural beach, they provide buffer zones, and you let people live at the higher elevations behind those areas. Those are tough decisions. People aren't going to want to move out of harm's way. They're going to prefer, in many cases, for the government to come in and pay them to clean up afterwards. But it's already gotten too insp- uh, expensive. The National Flood Insurance Program, which pays for a lot of this, is bankrupt several times over. And really, we need a more rational approach. This is one case where pure economic thinking, moderated by a a soft heart for thinking about what people really think they need. The two ideas have to come together in a humane way to gradually get people to make other decisions and that that they have to live right down by the beach. What um, cities are going to have to make decisions like what part of this city do we 
give up or like sacrifice? I mean, is New York, Miami, are these yeah. places going to have to think like this part we're going to just have to let go of? There are areas of New York City and Queens and Brooklyn that get regular tidal flooding now. And there's been a plan to build a, what's called a surge barrier, an openable protection uh, across the mouth of Jamaica Bay, which would take care of some of the problem, but not the whole problem. And there are areas like that around the whole country. And will the money be there to build a protective barrier? And what happens when you try to put the protective barrier in a certain place and you leave certain people on the outside of the barrier? Yeah, yeah, what right. are they going to say about that? So this is not a problem just for New York or just for Miami. It's a problem for Boston. It's a problem for Savannah. It's a problem all around the Gulf and East Coast. And eventually it's a problem on the West Coast, too. And if you're sitting in any of those cities and thinking, so are you saying we could build a wall if we're willing to put the money in and solve this? Like, so you're saying a wall will protect us, will it? Not really. Uh, it'll protect okay. us for some period of time. Uh, but okay. there's no, you know, there, you know, it's expensive to build a high wall. We don't know exactly how high sea level is going to go. Mm-hmm. So, what, you know, if you're going to build walls today, you better build them with the possibility of either building them much higher than they, you think they have to be, just in case, or building them so you can add on top later, which is expensive. It means the base has to be heavier. Then in some places, walls aren't very helpful. There's been an ongoing discussion of whether Miami can be helped with the this kind of protection because it sits on limestone and water can seep, not, not just go over the, the, the beach or over the protection, but it can come up from underneath. Hmm. Uh, so that isn't an end to the problem either. If sea level is moderate and it gets to some level of a couple of feet, it'll be a heck of a lot easier to envision defenses than if sea level is you know, eventually up at four, five, six, seven feet. It's very expensive to build protection against that uh, amount of sea level rise. And we're not even sure on an engineering basis whether when you get to six or seven feet, we really could do it effectively. So that's where we stand. Mm. We have to get ready in some cases, therefore, to really plan a future away from the coast. That doesn't mean everybody lives in the middle of the country. It just means you don't put expensive stuff and people's lives at risk right up against the water anymore, which is what we used to want to do, not just for, uh, you know, the amenity of it, but because cities, you know, were built around ports and they wanted to get as close to the the edge as possible. We have to envision a different future uh, and we're going to have to do the envisioning now because we actually have to start some of the defensive measures now because we can't afford to wait and just let it play out. Let me add one little piece to this, uh, moving away from the coast, which is, uh, I know you've talked about the fact that, you know, if you don't live on the coast and you think, well, what does, you know, maybe things will get warmer and whatever, um, how does climate change really impact water around here? I know you've argued uh, it does. Yeah, I mean, you know, we got a good lesson on that. I think it was uh, last winter when there were a bunch of dam collapses in the middle of the country. Intense precipitation events are getting heavier Mm. and more common. There's more water to deal with because in a warmer climate, there's more evaporation from the ocean, 
what goes up must come down, and where a lot of it comes down is in heavier and heavier rainstorms on land, and that was undoubtedly a factor in those dam collapses around the country. And it's the same picture as on the coast, when people are used to not want to live where the river would flood, and then we were clever about it. We started building levees, and people start moving into floodable, essentially floodable lands, but then what happens when the protection, which is never perfect, breaks down. I mean, New Orleans is as much as 10 feet below sea level, and we've been very clever about building defenses for places like that, but we know, we saw it in Hurricane Katrina, the defenses collapsed, and that was despite the fact that we supposedly, after a 1965 hurricane, Betsy, had learned a lesson and we're going to build robust defenses, but we didn't, I don't know the full story, but we tried to save some money, essentially, I think, and we didn't build defenses which would be good enough to protect against the kind of uh, storm surge that we had during Katrina. So now they're building, they build back defenses, tens of billions of dollars. It's a great thing. I love New Orleans. I'm glad we saved it. But on the other hand, we didn't build defenses that'll protect against a Category 5 hurricane, which is what happens down there sometimes. So we have to realize that there are limits to how effective we can be. We cannot face this problem by thinking that we're clever enough to overcome by just engineering a little better. This is not at its heart an engineering problem, it's a human problem. It's a problem of human beings reconceiving their relationship to the climate and being smart enough to act in advance to develop safe habitation for themselves, infrastructure that they won't have to repair every 10, 20, or 30 years due to the damage that's happening, but that will be making a contribution continually to the economy because we build it right in the first place and we put it in a safe place. And, and I would want to add on top of that, if we don't do it all in a more equitable way that we, than we're used to doing these things, a lot of the population is just going to get mad, not cooperate, and then we'll never get the job done in time. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so finally, this issue is huge, obviously. This is the nature of this. This is the big issue. Uh, it calls for these huge political solutions that are just outside the reach, the scope of what most people think about on a day-to-day -day basis. If somebody's listening to this, they're a regular person, is this just like they should make sure they think about this when they vote? Um, is this where they should think about, you know, not living too close to the coast or a flood zone? What, what should an average person do when they hear what you're saying? So first of all, just like with buying energy efficient equipment to reduce your carbon footprint, you make decisions, household decisions that you're making every day about where to live, how to build your house, how to keep it up, whether to install hurricane clips, all of these decisions, some of which are relatively small and don't involve a lot of money, some of which are big and do involve a significant expense, and you try to make those decisions in a way that's responsible for your family. Remembering that this risk is not something that's going to start in 30 years, it's something that started already, that is already hurting people, already destroying infrastructure, already destroying houses and killing people in some cases. That's number one. Number two, of course, 
The answer is always vote. I have to believe, because there's no other choice, that our democracy will work, that it does work, and that it's up to this challenge. We're, we're really in the soup if our governments just show a level of ineptitude in dealing with this because we can't afford any ineptitude. We really need to be crisp in dealing with this problem. We really need to think ahead. We need the kind of thinking that we saw sometimes in dealing with COVID. On the other hand, at other times we saw some bumbling. We can't afford bumbling with this one because the, the price, just like with COVID, ultimately adds up over years, decades, and is enormous. Michael Oppenheimer is a professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton. He has served on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. Michael, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you want to hear this whole conversation, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And before we go here, one more voice from our check-ins with reporters on the ground covering the climate. We're in the middle of a long drought. Uh, it's going on 20 years now. Ron Dungan is a senior field correspondent for Phoenix's KJZZ, whose reporting focuses on public lands. It just seems like every time I turn around, there's a new way that climate change is sort of inserting itself into the narrative. 20 years ago, this was a story about mismanaging our public lands. We've got all this fuel buildup, and we have more people coming to live here. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the fires just started getting bigger and bigger and hotter. And I last year talked to a wildfire specialist, a historian who's researched this for years, and he was talking about, you know, these firefighters in some cases are just saying, we can't do anything we can't get ahead of this problem because of things like climate change and drought. And when it comes to fighting the fires, they just get out of the way. It's that big. He says sometimes it seems like policymakers just want the problem to go away, which is understandable, but it isn't going away. And the gap between how the wealthy and everybody else are able to cope with the fallout from, let's say, forest fires is notable. You know, I once went to a reservation and I was seeing the um, cleanup after a wildfire and it took years to sort of get these berms in place to protect uh, homes from the runoff, uh, whereas in Flagstaff, that stuff just gets done right away. So, yeah, it does impact some more than others. There's no question about that. Ron Dungan is with Phoenix's KJZZ, and you can hear more of his reporting, as well as work from the Houston and Jacksonville reporters you heard earlier, that's on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Songer, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Abby Bagini. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRX.